Good evening. Um, I have, I just, I'm going to say this. I'm going to precursor a couple of things. The first thing I'm going to precursor is I have no power. But I bet that if somebody, like, got tattooed fist guts on their face for Spirit Day, you would get a lot of points. So I'm just, I, don't get a tattoo, though. That would be bad. But, like, you know, just maybe write it on your face. Make that your nickname for the day. So, you know, maybe. Um, so that's one. Number two, I think we're a day in. So at this point, I think we like each other. I think you guys are pretty cool. I hope you guys like me. Um, and I didn't say that because I was fishing. I said that as a precursor, as a disclaimer to say, I'm about to ruin that. Um, because I've, I've realized in church, there are certain things you don't talk about. And when you do, it can create tension, right? Like if I jumped up here and started talking about political candidates, it would get weird, especially because most of you can't vote, so I don't even think you'd care that much. Um, if I started talking about how you should spend your money, if I started telling you that you should break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, uh, you probably would like me less. But maybe the thing that we don't talk about that we're going to have to talk about this morning is I'm just going to go ahead and say this out loud. You're going to judge me, think I'm weird, and maybe not trust anything else that I say. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't like coffee. Now, now for those of you... For those of you that cheered, I'm glad that I could be a safe place for you. For the others of you who are thinking about how do I get to a phone to call my mom to get me out of here, um, let, me, let me explain. Uh, so I'm not saying that I think coffee is sinful. What I am saying is that I think coffee is gross. And so, but there, there's a reason I'm telling you this. And some people are going to be like, well, it's an acquired taste and you got to work into liking it. And I'm like, here's the thing. Like, I didn't have to work to like apple pie. I just liked it. But, but the reason I say that is a few years ago, I was on a trip to visit, visit those who were working amongst the nations, especially in the Middle East and East Africa. And so I was on a trip where in, in two weeks, I was in five different countries. And one of the countries I was in was Ethiopia. And so we landed in Ethiopia and uh, we were having a conversation and we were at the house of this family who had moved to Ethiopia to begin to build the, this identity project of helping the Somali people know their history and in doing that, hiring Somali people to be on their team and then ultimately sharing the gospel with those who were on their team and using the publication to share the goodness of God. It was a really cool way of doing missions. And so we're sitting at their house, and they said, hey, uh, by the way, Ethiopia, because of its connection to Italy, is a coffee culture. We want to make you some coffee. And I'm like, I don't, I don't like coffee. But on mission trips, like, well, the, the number one rule is whatever they give you, you eat it. You drink it. And so this, uh, this lady comes in, and it's not just coffee. It's a coffee ceremony. She takes the, takes the beans, and she is roasting the beans in front of me. Like, they make the water, they make the cup of coffee, they hand it to me, they, they, and I take my first sip, and they're like, isn't this amazing? Now, my words said, thank you. My eyes said, this tastes like burnt water. But the, and some of you were like, we about to fight behind the chapel after this is over. But the reason I say that is, there are moments when you enter into a different culture or context where you're asked to do things that are maybe not normal for you, that may be normal for them, and it feels like in some ways you've got to swallow your pride and just do what they're asking you to do so that way you don't come across as rude. 
And as we continue to walk through the story of Daniel, we'll be in chapter one this evening, we're going to get to see more of that. And he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are actually entered into a moment where they have to be, they're being asked to do something that is not part of their culture. And and there's a threat for them to not enter into the culture the way that they're being asked to. And the question is, when you have that type of moment, who are you ultimately going to fear? And so here's our main idea this evening. The fear of the Lord means we seek to please the Lord first and above all other opinions. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. So Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for just this unique moment. There will not be another July 31st, 2023 at about 8 p.m. with um, this same group of people in the room. And so, Lord, I'm praying that both for me and for them that you would speak to us uniquely through your word, that we would walk out of this place knowing that for this moment you made the word come alive in a particularly unique way to help us look like you. And so, Lord, would you give us the grace of, of wanting to please you above all else, even if it's contrary to the opinions around us. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Remember, if you're from, uh, unfamiliar with your Bible, there's a table of contents to help you. The big number is the chapter. The small number is the verse. And so starting in verse 3, it says this. And also, it's going to be on the screens behind you. And so if you don't have a Bible, we want you to grab one. But if you don't have one, you can follow along this way. Uh, the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judites, were Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them the names Belshazzar to Daniel, and Shadrach to Hananiah, and Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Now, as you read this, uh, we, we talked this morning about um, this moment when because of both the, the sinfulness of Israel but also the decision-making of God that the, the people of God were taken from their homes and brought to this place called Babylon. Now, as they enter into Babylon, I mentioned to you that one of the things that they were doing to remove their cultural identity is they took things from their culture and they locked them away where they, they weren't readily available to remind them of who they were, and that feels kind of brutal. But as we read this text, this actually feels a little bit different. That Nebuchadnezzar is doing this thing to make them part of the culture that actually doesn't feel abusive. It actually feels like it's, it's a kindness to them. He's educating them. He's bringing them into the royal court. That he, He's taking the ones that, um, that they were probably teenagers. And so some of you in this room would, would fall into the category, the age range, um, and the, the description that they were good looking, that they didn't have physical defect, that they were knowledgeable and perceptive, and they had the ability to serve, that they were taking the best of the best. And they're saying, we're not going to get rid of you. We're not going to enslave you in terms of the way that we think of enslavement. We're actually going to exalt you. 
We're gonna make you part of what we're doing. We're gonna give you a seat at the table and make you feel like you're, you're part of our people. And in doing that, when people ask you, why are you not angry at Nebuchadnezzar? You'd be like, man, he's actually kind of a good guy. We get to eat the best food when we hang out in Nebuchadnezzar's court. We get to have the best drink. Like, we get to wear the best clothes. Like, we're being involved. We're being included in. And the way that he is trying to bring them into the culture, to assimilate them in, is not by trying to uh, to treat them poorly, but he's actually treating them well. He's exalting them, giving them comfort, giving them education, making them feel a part of this grand, massive Babylonian kingdom. Like, he is trying to sweet-talk them in. And even to develop skills for them that they feel like they could contribute and provide. All of this is this really beautiful way of making them feel like they're in. And it's also this really deceptive way to make them not want to be who they really were. One of the things that I want to impress upon you is that if you're going to have resilient faith in a world that is hostile to your trust in Jesus, that sometimes the biggest threat is not going to be something oppressive or dangerous. It might actually be comfort and status and inclusion that may put you the most at odds. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma City. I didn't expect you to cheer for that. Um, But... I'll just, I'll just be straight with you. Like, I, I love that the Lord allowed me to be born in Oklahoma City, but, like, Oklahoma City is not something to brag about. Like, I got friends in Oklahoma City and Texas, and, like, the way they talk about, like, where they grow up, like, like, Texas is the best state of the union. Nobody says that about Oklahoma. Like, nobody's, like, bragging, I represent the 405. Like, you've never heard that in a rap song. Like, nobody's, like, that, that excited about Oklahoma. And so I'm from there, I can say it. So, but one of the things when you grow up in school in Oklahoma in sixth grade, you read a book called Where the Red Fern Grows. Yeah. And so if you don't know what the red fern, what, where the red fern grows, what it's about, it's about a young boy who, like, his ambition in life is to get enough money so that they can, he can purchase hunting dogs. And he eventually gets that money and gets those dogs. And, and like, the, the, it's the adventures and escapades of this kid as he tries to become this great hunter with the dogs that he has. And there's a, in, the, in the book, there's a particular moment where they're trying to trap a raccoon. And the way that they try to trap the raccoon is that they have a hollowed out piece of wood, maybe a log, maybe a hollowed out branch. I don't don't remember. It's been a lot of years since sixth grade, and I don't even know that I read it back then. Um, But what they would do is they would screw like nails into the hollowed out log, and then they would put a shiny object in the back of the log. And so what would happen is that the raccoon would reach in there and grab it. And as long as the raccoon was holding on to the shiny object, its hand was too big to pull back out of the nails. And so it was actually being trapped by this beautiful thing. And the way to be free and the way to get out of the mess was to let go of what looked like it was beautiful and pull your hand out and run away. But raccoons are not that smart. And so raccoons don't let go of the object because the object is so beautiful to them that they want to hold on to it, even if it means their own danger and detriment. And I would dare say to you that what we're seeing in this example of the book of Daniel is that sometimes the most dangerous thing to your faith is not the nails that you can see, but the shiny object that you won't let go of. And so sometimes the thing that gets our faith in the most trouble and puts it in the most vulnerable position is not the fact that somebody says that they disagree with your belief in Jesus or disagree with your trust in the Bible. It's that they want to lure you over and say, well, you could hold on to that, but we also want you to look at this. 
have this type of status, this type of influence, this type of comfort. Enter in and be like us. And if you could be like us, we'll accept you. And holding on to that is, more, is a beautiful trap. People call it golden handcuffs. They're shiny, but they won't let you go. And in these first few verses, I've just summarized it this way. Sometimes the biggest challenge to our faith or challenges to our faith are wrapped in the prettiest packages. It's interesting what we'll read next when we read about Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. It's the narrator has particular interest in them, but also the way that he talks about them is of the dozens, if not hundreds of boys who are in this situation, these are the four that are willing not to hold on to the pretty object and to go against the tide. Let's keep reading. Verse eight would say this. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now part of this, I wanna, I wanna be careful here. This is an important thing that we need to talk about, not just for the verses that we just read, but actually the entirety of where we're going, that as much as Daniel is this cool example of somebody living with resilient faith in the middle of a really hostile world, the point of the book of Daniel is not for you to be more like Daniel. Like if you walk out of tonight and say, hey, you know what, tomorrow during lunch and during dinner, I'm not eating meat, I'm just going to have vegetables. I'm not, we're not gonna have a conversation about you drinking wine because you, you ain't getting wine at camp. So that's not an issue here. Like if the point is that you get a dieting plan out of this, then you miss the purpose of what this is about. And while Daniel's specific action is to say that he's not going to eat this particular food, it's not as much about the food as it is about loyalty to the Lord. Part of what's happening is um, there's this distinction that has been true since the minute God said, I'm going to have a people that's different than the rest of the world. So if you were to rewind in your Bible all the way back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, there is this moment when God pulls those who were enslaved, the Hebrew people, out of Egypt. They go, they go through the Red Sea, get to the other side. They begin to start their life. They go before this mountain. The presence of the Lord comes down on the mountain. Moses goes up the mountain. Everybody else is like, all right, good luck, Moses. We'll see you when you get back, homie. Your Bible doesn't say it that exact way. And... The Lord begins to lay out for them through Moses, this is the way that I want you to live that's different than the rest of the world. And some of those things are moral. Don't kill people. I think it's a good rule. 
Some of those things are clearly cultural. Things like the, the type of blend in their garments. Why would God do that? Because there's nothing sinful about two blends of clothes, two blends of fabric in your clothing, but it is a distinction from the rest of the world. And so there was a thing that he was trying to do with how they ate, what they wore, the way that they lived that made them distinct from the rest of the world to say, these people are different and look how God interacts with them versus everyone else in the world. And so even in this moment when they've been pulled out of their homes because of their lack of faithfulness, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah say, it doesn't matter what our point on the map is, we still want to live with this distinction under the Lord. But here's the the interesting thing about what they do, it says that Daniel asked permission. Now, I know me. I know that when I think that I am morally right, I am not asking permission. When I think that I have um, the moral high ground to stand on and look my, down my nose at the person that disagrees with me, I'm not humbly approaching that situation. And here's what I think I know about you. I think that's true about you also. And so just for instance, let's say you have a sibling. If, the, if your sibling's in the room, don't look at them. If your mom says, hey, I just put snacks in the fridge, but I don't want you to eat any of them. And they run to the fridge and they start loading Twinkies into your face. And you're staring at them saying, I told you mom not, told you not to do that. When your mom comes home and says, you're grounded until the Lord comes back. You don't say, you know what, it's really not that big a deal. I just want to be humble towards you. I was right. You were wrong. Like, you, you laugh at them while you mess with their stuff, while they're on, in solitary confinement for the next three years. Because you were morally right and they were wrong. And so it's weird that Daniel, though he's standing on his conviction, has this humility to ask permission of somebody that's opposed to what he believes. And then we'll take it a step further because the eunuch, because the Lord had given kindness and compassion to Daniel through the eunuch, the eunuch says, hey, I hear what you're saying, but I'm afraid that you're going to look weaker and more frail than everybody else, and that's going to be on me, like the king is going to come after me. And Daniel says, not only am I asking your permission, but I'll take responsibility for the results on me. When was the last time that you felt like somebody who was opposed to you, that if they were going to get negative results, that you said, I believe in this so much that I'll lay my head on the line for you? This is the part of Daniel that sometimes that we miss talking about when we want to say to other people that, hey, you should act like Daniel when the world's hostile to you, that we want to talk about the boldness that Daniel had, but sometimes we miss the beauty of the humility that Daniel had. Daniel was willing to ask to do something contrary to the tradition of the day and willing to take the results on his shoulders if it didn't work out. And the reality is that it does, that they look better and stronger and healthier and so much so that chief eunuch says, hey, we're just gonna keep doing it for you guys even though this is not what the king requested because of how good you look. And so the Lord blesses them even in the middle of them being distinct. But I don't think it's just the distinction. I think it's the humility that the Lord is honoring. And so I wrote it this way. We no longer avoid certain foods to prove our relationship with God. And praise the Lord because I love bacon. 
but we do choose to be different than the culture around us. Now, I joked about coffee messing up our relationship, but this point might, might get me in trouble. I just, for those of you who are believers in Jesus Christ in the room, this may be a really good litmus test. That if an alien, if you believed in aliens, came down and sat and watched your life for a week and watched the life of somebody who didn't follow Jesus, would there be any distinction at all? Uh, maybe there are, I mentioned this morning that maybe you're here and maybe you don't have an experience with church or an experience with camp. And so, one, I want you to know that I love that you're here. Two, let me ask the question this way. Maybe if you are, have been invited by a friend who says they follow Jesus, does their life look any different than your life? Because it's very clear here that because of their commitment to God, because of their belief that God is good, because of their belief that even though they've been dragged out of their homes in the middle of a mess, that they should still honor the Lord, that they're willing to be distinct. And in their willingness to be distinct, maybe the biggest distinction is the humility that they walk in. In a world that wants to exalt them and make them more important, they're willing to become less that Lord, the Lord might make them more. And what if we were marked with that kind of distinction? What if instead of being like everybody else who is trying to get more people to pay attention and follow and, 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 go, and, and, and buy into them, what if instead we were trying not to be seen at all except for by the Lord because it's his opinion that mattered more than everybody else's? And then verse 17 would say this. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Ultimately, this will build, they were training these young men to be able to do what we'll see Daniel do over and over again, which is interpret dreams, see things in the supernatural. They were trying to train people to do that, and it's not the training. This, this text will tell you it's that God gave it to them. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in the entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, I think there's something important here that I want you to see. And maybe the best way I can say it is to not quote myself, but to quote somebody smarter than me. The 20th century theologian, the notorious B.I.G., would say it this way. Mo money, mo problems. And, and this is not about money, but this is about status. And something that you're going to learn as you watch the book of Daniel is that every time they get a promotion, there's a new challenge or more promotions, more problems. Because what seems to be happening here is that they have stood better, 10 times better than everybody else around them. They get to attend to the king. They've been moved into this place of status, and that feels awesome. If the book of Daniel ended here, here's what the message would be. Be faithful to God. You'll get a promotion, and it'll go well for you. Except for these type of promotions puts more spotlight on them, more attention on them. And then when the next challenge comes, it seems to be greater than this challenge. The reality is that this challenge isn't all that dangerous. 
They choose not to eat a particular type of food for 10 days. The worst thing that could happen is they say, hey, you guys look like you're a little bit thin. You need to go ahead and eat some more food here. But that's not what's going to continue to happen that these promotions are going to put them in positions where their lives are going to be on the line over and over and over again. And it seems like every time they're advanced into another level of leadership, that more problems await them when they get to this new level. More promotions mean more problems for them, but it also means that there's more opportunity for faith to be shown and the fear of the Lord to be played out in their life. And can I just tell you, As you grow, you're going to have more and more opportunities to to show your faithfulness and fear of the Lord. And that seems to get harder with the more access and, and status you get. I'll tell you, I, I used to be like you, especially particularly you guys that are sitting in the back row of church. Like I, I was a back row kid. Nothing, no shame in being a back row kid. Like, that's, like I, that was me. And when I came into the church, I felt this awkwardness because I knew how busted up my life was. I knew how sinful I was. I knew how, how rattled I was by, by sin, particularly sexual sin. Like I, I knew. And then when I would look at other kids in the youth group and they, they looked good and knew how to sing the songs and knew how to raise their hands, like they looked like they were perfect people. I'm like, I do not belong here. Y'all got this right. Jesus loves you. You love him. You don't got anything to work out. You've overcome sin. I'm, I'm, I barely made it tonight. No, when I sat in the back with those struggles, nobody really cared what my life looked like. Leaders cared because they wanted to disciple me, but nobody looked at me as an example to others. And then I remember I graduated high school, started going to college. They gave me a group of kids to be their mentor in the youth group. Um, We decided that we wanted to be a Christian rap group called the Sons of Thunder. Parenthetically, if you are going to be a rap group, you have to be able to rap. We have zero songs, zero beats, zero bars. Like, we were awful. But we had the dream. I went from being a back row kid to all of a sudden having a level of leadership that now the way that I conducted myself mattered, not just because I wanted to honor the Lord, but also because I was becoming an example to others. Uh, From that, I moved from that role to being hired on staff at the church where I was serving as as a mentor to those students to oversee the children's ministry and the college ministry. I don't know why anybody trusted me with children's ministry. I already told a kid that his mom was wrong about David and Goliath, and they hired me anyway, so it didn't make any sense. And now I went from the status of being just a kid who was trying to get my own life right to leading a small group of kids, to being over a ministry. And the challenges became more. And the expectation became more. And the burden became more. And I'm telling you this not because I'm trying to scare you off from growing, but to say that the Lord is entrusting you with opportunities to prove your faithfulness and to grow in your fear of the Lord. And the more times that you get promoted, the more the enemy is going to want to challenge you in that. Let me just back up because I said something, assuming that you knew what I meant. I said the enemy. Like you do realize that there is an enemy of your soul who isn't like, man, you guys came to Hume. Tell me about it when you get back. 
to wants to see you fail and make a fool of yourself so that way that you're just a mockery so people are like, man, God ain't real. Look how they went up there for that week and acted like they're awesome, came back and they look like the rest of us. More promotions lead to more problems, but they also lead to this opportunity to have the faithfulness of God play out in your life and for you to prove your fear of the Lord. So what do we do with that? We started by talking about that the fear of the Lord means that we seek to please the Lord first and above all other opinions. Mikey talked last night that the fear of the Lord is not cowering in the corner, though I'm going to spend some time talking about the Lord ain't Mary Poppins. I I don't have time. I won't do it tonight. Um, There's a reality that there is this magnitude to God that ought to make your heart beat a little bit faster. But what we're talking about here is that when we see what God does and what he says, that our desire is that we want to please him above all else. And that opinion matters more than anyone else's. This is what the fear of the Lord looks like for Daniel and for Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And this is what we're being called to also. But I just want to make it clear that that type of, of resilient faith built on the fear of the Lord is also accompanied with humble distinction. Your resilient faith is shaped by humble distinction. Let me say it differently. Following Jesus doesn't give you permission to be a jerk. You, somebody was like, (laughs) slow clap, stare at, Hopefully you weren't like staring at somebody like, amen. But I, I, just, I just want to be careful. Because if we're meant to look different than the rest of the world, then that means when you jump on social media and use your voice, you certainly can't sound like all the other people who are using it as an opportunity to bash and cancel everybody else in the world. It means that when you disagree with the way that somebody lives, that the way that you approach them is not by this moral high ground trying to shame them into into agreeing with you, but approaching them through the love and grace of Jesus that says that though you may not be pleasing to me, I'm running towards you, not running away from you. I didn't make this up. I think Peter, who we talked about yesterday, who's writing a letter to a group of exiles, would say this much better than I can. In 1 Peter chapter 2, um, he's, he's written much in the letter. Yesterday we read about how he called them chosen, how he called them this royal priesthood who has the opportunity to carry the message of God to the world in such a way that they can see that God has pulled them out of darkness and brought them into light, that they can show that they were people who didn't have mercy but now have received mercy. But then he follows it up by saying this, verse 21, for you were called to this. Think about the craziness of what he's saying to them. You were called to be pushed out of your homes into a hostile environment that doesn't agree with your faith, that doesn't think that you should be living the way that you should be living. Like to say that you were called to this in that situation isn't the type of thing that makes you kind of snap a point at your homies and say, that's awesome. That's one of those things that you say, wait a minute, this is God's plan for me? You were called to this. 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I want my faith to look like that. I want when somebody says, man, I disagree with that guy who like talks really fast and doesn't breathe for extended periods of time when he's preaching. But man, I just can't get over the fact that when we said bad things about him, he didn't say bad things about him. I just can't get over the fact that when we threatened against him that he didn't threaten back that there's something about him and the way that he gives himself over and trusts to the Lord that, that is so distinct from everything else that I've seen in my world. Like, I want that to be the picture of the way that I follow Jesus. I long for that to be the picture of the way that you follow Jesus. And Daniel gives us a real-life example of what that looks like, but it's not just an example to be inspired by. It's an example for us to wrestle with and say, what is behind that for him? And Peter would say that if we're going to do that, it's because we see it in Jesus first and we walk in his steps. I think Daniel would say to you that I see the goodness of my God and so therefore this is why I'm willing to ask permission and this is why I'm willing to take responsibility and this is why I'm willing to be humble when everybody else wants to be exalted because I see a God that's willing to humble himself and suffer and not be exalted in, in, in real time that he might ultimately be exalted above all else. I just wanna let you in. The word humble comes from the same language group the word, that the word humiliation comes from. And we talked about that Paul would write in Philippians that look at Jesus who is willing to humble himself, who is willing to be humiliated, that God might exalt him. Your resilient faith is built on this desire to please God so much that even if it feels like everybody else is stepping over you, that you trust that he's ultimately going to do what's good. For me and for you, I long for our faith to look like that. Let me pray. So Jesus, help us. Even this week, it can be easy. We are... We're in an environment where we get to have the opportunity to compete with and against one another. We are here in groups of churches, and even some of us are here with a circle of friends, and it can be really easy to make those the distinctions that we think are most important and not the distinction of operating in humility that pleases you. And so, Lord, would you help us? that even this week we have the opportunity to practice what it looks like to take the step down, to, to be willing to be humble, to be willing to ask permission, to be willing to take responsibility, to be willing to look like you, Jesus, that instead of responding in the way that we were, uh, that we were spoken to, that instead we respond with something that says, but I want to please the Lord above all else. I'm not going to do the same back. 
Lord, I pray that even as we get ready, um, I, I know it's Monday. I know it feels like it's too early to even think about going back down the mountain. But there are going to be those that we see that, that we're going to come back and say, the Lord has done something. I'm just going to call your shot, Lord. I just believe you're going to transform lives this week. And people are going to go back down different than the way that they came up. And it's going to be easy for people to put them to the test and say, are you that different or are you just the same person you were that you just had, but you had a cool experience this past week? And I'm asking you, Jesus, to help us, not by exalting how much we have grown, but by showing the humility of what you've done. Maybe there are going to be conversations for us where we go to people whom we have not looked like you and we apologize for not being faithful to what we believe. Maybe there are going to be conversations where we're going to have to be honest with people about this is what life is going to look like now for me because I'm wanting to follow Jesus and I would love for you to come along with me. But even if you don't agree with me, I'm going to love you and I'm going to show you the mercy and kindness that Jesus has shown me. And so would you help us? Would you mark our resilient faith with humble distinction? It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.